time here on LOA Today. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, you might find. and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time, uh, other times in other parts of the world. <laughs> you'll have to figure that out. I was, uh, years ago, I was in, in Bali. <laughs> I think it was exactly 12 hours off from New York. Anyway, you find us on the Progressive Radio Network here at prn.fm and find all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com and also on other um, other podcast media. And you can also catch us on the phone, etc. So if you go to the website, it tells you how to do all that. Well, today I wanted to uh, talk about the canon. <laughs> so... <clears throat> um, uh, Harold Bloom just died a couple days ago. Harold Bloom was a major literary figure and quite controversial because he had um, he had been standing up for the Western literary canon against critics of the canon. So if we go to Wikipedia, let's see what we have here. Harold Bloom, Harold Bloom, 1932, this year, was an American literary critic and the Sterling Professor of Humanities at Yale. He was also a professor at NYU. Following the publication of his first book, wrote more than 40 books during his lifetime, edited hundreds, da-da-da-da-da. Um, Bloom was a defender of the Western canon at a time when literary departments were focusing on what he called the literature of resentment. And if you're a follower of Friedrich Nietzsche, you might pronounce that resentment. And he attacked multiculturalists, feminists, Marxists, neoconservatives, and others. And his uh, importance is in well, his key idea that, that brought him to literary fame was the um, misreading of influence, that uh, he was writing about poetry, but Vincent Scully, a great architectural critic and very influential on me, sort of the dominant critic when I was coming of age in, uh, in architectural theory, uh, Vincent Scully applies Bloom's theories to architecture as well, but Bloom originated them for poetry. But his idea was that a <clears throat> uh, an art, let's say, a, a creative figure could be an artist, a <clears throat> poet, or a architect, whatever, is grows up under the influence of a strong figure but then deliberately misinterprets that figure, and he uses the term swerves from that figure to eventually create their own, their own creative work. So that was one of his key ideas, but lots of books, uh, a couple on Shakespeare, on genius, on the canon, and also a very key uh, book of his is called The American Religion, and you would think a book called The American Religion would start with, well, what are the predominant dominations? How many people are, you know, <clears throat> Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Muslim, whatever. And that's not what it's about. It's a very interesting approach. Is what do Americans actually believe, uh, spiritually believe, uh, whatever, you know, independent of the label. And... <clears throat> <laughs> I gotta confess something. I gotta I gotta look that book up and see if it's on audio because I've bought it several times over the decades because I lose my books because you know I've got a couple mini storages and uh, an office and home just 
and a couple of closets in my building filled with books. So God knows where any of them are. Somebody comes into my office, you know, they're going to judge my, uh, what, intellectual foundations based on the books they see on the shelves. But that's totally random. <laughs> Most, you know, there's also boxes and boxes of books under my desk, not to mention what's in, uh, in storage. But anyway, I've bought that book more than once. But um, a very interesting idea. I remember my mother read it and talked to me about it. The idea that uh, what do Americans actually believe? If I ever read it, I'll report on it. And after the show, I'm going to go check and see if there's an audio version, in which case I can get to it right away. But anyway, um, this Sunday, the New York Times in the review section, which is where the weekend editorial uh, section has on page two, did Harold Bloom win the Cannon War? And it opens, it's often hard to know when an era begins and ends, but the recent deaths of the novelist Toni Morrison in August and the literary scholar Harold Bloom on Monday makes a case for putting the era of literary canon wars to rest. So <clears throat> the article uh, says they both won and they both lost. So Bloom standing for, let's use the phrase, <laughs> and it's not a good phrase, but we'll know what it means. The dead white males, you know, Plato and Aristotle, Socrates, Shakespeare, uh, Blake, etc. <laughs> and Toni Morrison, uh, minorities, women, etc., uh, etc. Et so... The article contends, this uh, editorial, that both of those groups are still very active in college teaching, so they both won, but that less and less has been a huge drop in the percent of college students who are majoring in the humanities, which would include English and comparative literature. And... Um, more and more turning to STEM, <laughs> stuff they can get a job with. And uh, so, in that sense, they both lost. Well, I, I think this editorial misses a lot of the point um, because there are two other things going on. One of them is that I think that how Bloom very much did lose the canon wars, not only in that we have different, we read different stuff in college, but in addition, the way we, in uh, li our literary criticism, the way we approach that stuff is very different. So, you know, how do you, shall we say, build a human being, you know, layer by layer, building a physical, intellectual, moral, spiritual self. And are presumably, that's what our education is for, as well as those specific skills that we're going to use to get a job. And uh, <clears throat> just to digress about this, uh, critics have pointed out, have observed, <laughs> that the people who major in uh, the liberal arts tend to do okay career-wise. They make less money initially and more money in the long run than those who uh, are in STEM fields. But all of that's really meaningless because um, we don't know, you know, the people who go to an Ivy College and major in liberal arts might be people who would do well no matter what they did. You know, if they if you had forced those people to go to community college or skip college or apprentice or get a job directly out of high school, that cohort of people might have done very well, uh, whether or not they 
went to Stanford or Harvard or wherever they might go. So, uh, you know, there's a very limited meaning to that kind of uh, that kind of approach. But anyway, I think that um, even within what we call the humanities, um, you know, liberal arts tends to include science and uh, the social sciences. Humanities tends to be literature and philosophy. Even within that field, I think it's not doing its job in the <laughs> Here's an image. We think of an onion as something you peel. Uh, but maybe we can think of education as building the onion. And uh, as a matter of fact, the school where I teach, uh, we had come upon that idea maybe 45 years ago. And there was a woman associated with the school who was an incredible illustrator. And she would do these giant drawings of insects and stuff. They, you know, were just beautiful graphic exercises. And so she drew an onion <laughs> as the mascot of our school. But anyway, uh, are we reading Shakespeare in, uh, you know, when we read Shakespeare and our English teachers are helping us with it, are we reading it in a way that's helping us in layering on our onion layers, building ourselves, creating our physical, intellectual, moral, and spiritual, and social selves. Um, actually, I just used that image in a book I'm finishing up. It's at the publisher. We're working on the layouts. But uh, the book's about architecture. But the idea uh, was once described by Joseph Campbell in talking about India, and he talked about a particular Hindu philosophy of what's called the five sheaths, a sheath as in something in which you place a knife. So I guess the ultimate self is at the center, but there's more than one sheath. And the first sheath is um, your physical self, dead meat. Uh, and the second sheath is breath. So now it's not steak at the butcher shop, but uh, living, breathing. But my cat is living and breathing. So the next sheath is, I don't remember all of these now. Uh, but anyway, the next sheath is uh, our conscious self, and then finally the spiritual self. So these are the layers that in this uh, Hindu philosophical approach make up a self. And are we, how, are we serving the buildings of these layers, you know, uh, in the way? Or is it, you know, when we teach Shakespeare, is it in terms of resentment? So just um, both Nietzsche and, Friedrich and Kierkegaard referred to the term resentment and Kierkegaard had a good image of it. He said, imagine that there was a thin sheet of ice and there was a precious jewel at the center of this pond of this thin sheet of ice. And one brave person you know, laid down on their stomach and carefully wriggled across the surface of the ice. Uh, would we, to recover that jewel for everyone, uh, would we cheer that person and appreciate them or say, oh, what they're doing is foolish. Um, we don't need the jewel anyway. <laughs> I remember Golda Meir once described dealing with the Soviet Union <laughs> or to put the term in the abbreviated, the Russians. And she said, the Russians are like your neighbor who borrows your pot. And uh, some months later, he said, can I get my pot back? And they said, you never lent me the pot, uh, and I gave it back to you already, and besides that, it was broken. <laughs> she says, That's what it's like dealing with the Russians. <laughs> so anyway, um, what uh, Nietzsche means by resentment, first of all, it's pretty close to what we mean by resentment, 
And it's a word he made up with a kind of a French uh, overtone. But it's the, we all have, we all have shortcomings in our lives. We all do not achieve what we might have achieved. Now, some achieve more, some achieve less, but all of us don't achieve everything we might have hoped to achieve. And Nietzsche says, the strong person is too busy struggling to achieve more uh, to feel resentment about what they did not achieve. And the weak person uh, is resentful, blames others, says it wasn't important, etc. So if we look at, now I'm going to step in it, right? <laughs> if we look at, in academia, what's called uh, identity politics, that everything that I did not, one did not achieve, is not due to one's failures, inadequacies, bad luck, but rather to one's race, gender, minority status. And that uh, rather than say, well, you know, I've had some difficulties, I've had some disadvantages, I've had some bad luck, uh, now let's move forward. Instead, one can cling to uh, one's disadvantages, status, and blame them for what one did not achieve. So that's identity politics. And it's basically what Nietzsche was writing about when he talked about ressentiment. Well, anyway, there's a wonderful writer I wanted to get to. <laughs> and it sort of doesn't fit with the thread the way it's developed so far. So I hope I get to her. If I don't look her up, it's Eve Babbitt's. I'll talk about her shortly. But just to develop this idea a little bit more. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, wh where do we stand in our canon? In canon meaning those works with which one should be familiar to build one's onion. <laughs> to build oneself. And uh, to the extent that college is in trouble, and it is, there's been maybe 10, 20% drop in enrollment over the past five or six years. And there are maybe a dozen or so small liberal arts colleges, particularly in New England, that have been closing. Uh, the major, you know, the major research universities Harvard, Penn, Princeton, Yale, Stanford are as healthy as ever and are probably not going to be in trouble. But, eh, you know, a lot of them are. There's about 4,000 universities, and in 10 years there might be 2,000 universities. I mean, half of them could go out of business uh, just the way uh, the big three automobile companies almost went out of business and still might. <clears throat> and the reason is that the world is changing. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Jordan Peterson. We'll talk about him more in the future. If you're not familiar, uh, go to YouTube. Um, his uh, prominent book is 12 Rules for Life. And he said he and his wife have had health problems. So he suspended his lecture tour, but he lectured in over 100 cities in the past year. And, um, <clears throat> Uh, gets literally millions of views on YouTube. And he talks about, says YouTube is going to defeat cable TV. That, you know, cable TV is still like the networks. They feed the stuff to us. YouTube is, we feed each other. Um, YouTubes are posted by sometimes prominent people, uh, but typically, the most mm, listened to YouTubers do not have the institution of a network or a college behind them. So if you follow the intellectual dark web, which I do, um, Sam Harris, prominent 
<coughs> liberal atheist. Um, Dave Rubin, prominent uh, classical liberal, somewhat conservative uh, gay guy. Jordan Peterson, uh, prominent intellectual Christian. Um, uh, what's his name? Anyway, I'm trying to think of the conservative Jewish guy. Uh, but anyway, these people literally get one, two, three million views of each of their YouTubes. Uh, <clears throat> Fox News, uh, MSNBC, CNN don't get that many viewers <laughs> in an entire day, you know, in an entire week. Uh, so here are these individuals with no, all I, you know, they, <laughs> they've got a laptop with a camera. <laughs> and then they click, they click post. I mean, I, I hope all everybody in my audience know how easy this is. But if you go to John Lobel on J-O-H-N-L-O-B as in boy E-L-L on YouTube and find my channel, I've got 180,000 views of and uh, 1,500 subscribers. And one of my, couple of my videos have tens of thousands of views. And this is our, our lectures about Gothic architecture, <laughs> about Frank Lloyd Wright. You know, what I do is when I'm lecturing to my students, I'll just click on, uh, I, I, there may be various choices, but I use a uh, software called Camtasia. It costs about 100 bucks. My school has adopted something else. I haven't learned how to use it yet, but my school's finally catching up. Uh, I click on that, and it records my voice in the computer mic. I've tried, you know, a lapel mic that you plug in because it, the computer mic is supposed to be not that great, but I found the computer mic better than anything I've tried to use. And then my PowerPoint, whatever's on the computer screen. And so my kids are not being videoed. And of course, they're watching what's on my laptop on the, on the video screen in the classroom. And then I, I go, I just click, <laughs> it uploads it to YouTube automatically. Uh, I, you know, actually, I think I've learned how to upload a video, but using this software, I don't even have to know that. So that's how easy it is, and that's what these people are doing, and they literally, um, between the, all of them together, these people that are referred to as the intellectual dark web, get tens of millions of views uh, when you combine them, and millions, each of them individually. Well, and then Jordan Peterson points out that um, blogs get 10 to 100 times as many listens as YouTubes. And you can listen to these things, uh, listen to blogs in found time. I listen when I'm driving. So I'm a big fan of a figure named Clayton Christensen. So look him up on Wikipedia. Clayton Christensen, born 1952, is an American academic, business consultant, and religious leader who currently serves as the yada, yada, yada professor of business administration at Harvard School of Business, best known for his theory of disruptive innovation. First introduced in his 1997 book, The Innovator's Dilemma, major, major book, a little bit tedious, and uh, so uh, find one of the YouTubes in which he explains this much better than reading or listening to the book. And it was, um, uh, he first used the term technological innovation and then uh, changed it to disruptive innovation. And the, um, it's not all technological advances are disruptive innovations in his sense. So, for example, he'll talk about the electric typewriter. The electric typewriter replaced 
the mechanical typewriter, except for, you know, lightweight portables. So you might still have a mechanical that you take to the beach where you might not be able to plug in. But um, electric typewriters came along, and <clears throat> you go down the list. They were electric typewriters were made by the same companies that made the mechanical uh, typewriters. They adopted. And then uh, businesses had typing pools. So there were typically women <laughs> who worked in the typing pool. And uh, even as I worked in a 40-person architectural office, and we had a typist. The receptionist could type. Uh, there was a typist who did all the typing. So none of us, we were architects. We didn't have typewriters. This is before computers. I'm talking about the late 60s. <clears throat> and um, we didn't have typewriters on our desks. So we would handwrite something, a uh, memo. You know, I'd go to a meeting. I'd take the minutes. I'd write a report. And I'd give it to the receptionist, who's the office manager. And she would then divide it up to the typist. If the typist was busy, she would type it. And if you're a big office, you're a law office, there might be a dozen people in this typing pool. Well, along come electric typewriters, nothing changes. <laughs> these, these women have, you know, better typewriters, and their job is easier. Uh, but the structure of the office doesn't change. Then comes along the first word processors, and they were big. Wang, uh, IBM had one, it never took off. But it, the dominant word processor was Wang. It was about the size of a desk. And uh, my sister worked in a uh, law office and was uh, you know, paralegal and typist. And she knew Wang, and she'd work on the Wang machine. And a big advantage is a computer. So you could type stuff. It would store it. You could correct it. So you wouldn't have to white out <laughs> something to correct it. You know, you, you just call it up on the screen, just like we do in word processing today. But it, that's all it could do. You couldn't watch TV. <laughs> you couldn't watch a movie on your Wang computer. Well, it still, it wasn't disruptive. Um, you know, the, the, um, uh, there's still a typing pool. But then came the personal computer, and so now the typist had to learn word perfect. And Wang was threatened. But the real change was when <coughs> the boss did their own typing. You didn't need a typing pool. And you didn't need a mail room. It didn't, you know, the report didn't get typed and put in an envelope and postal mailed. The boss would type their own memo and email it. Now all of a sudden everything changed. That was disruptive. All the typewriter companies are out of business. All the word processor companies are out of business. Um, there's no more mail room. Uh, so that's a disruptive innovation. And so uh, Christensen started with uh, articles about floppy disks. You know, there were 8-inch floppy disks, and then there were 5-inch floppy disks, and then there were 3-inch hard-cased floppy disks. And in each case, the previous company was put out of business by the new the new company. And we all know how these, uh, there were, Apple was not the first, but let's just take Apple. Uh, so <laughs> there are these big mainframe computers, and then uh, DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, comes along with the Mini. The Mini is the size of three washing machines um, and uh, disrupts the mainframe. And then the workstation comes along and disrupts the mini, and then the personal computer comes along and disrupts the workstation. So Sun, Apollo, etc., made really great workstations. They were all put out of business when the PC got powerful enough. And so he said, 
as each of these companies got disrupted, they were stupid. Why didn't Sun make a um, Why didn't Sun make a PC? And the answer was, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, they weren't stupid. They did the only thing they could, and figuring that out is what Christensen did. What happened was, uh, let's just take uh, Deck making minis the size of three washing machines. Well, why didn't they make a PC? Because PCs were toys that couldn't do any of the stuff their customers needed, and their customers were clamoring for the next generation mini, on which they had an incredible profit margin. Why should they? They were making selling these things for two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and pocketing a hundred thousand on each one. Why should they make a two thousand dollar? Um, $2,000 desktop computer and pocket 200 bucks profit on each one. But when the day came that the, the desktop PC became comparably p as powerful as the mini, as the chip kept getting more powerful, all of a sudden, in one, you know, in one, just a couple months, all of the mini companies went out of business. Anyway, that's Christensen's insight. And one of his more recent books is about how half the colleges are going to go out of business. <clears throat> so far, that's sounded a little extreme. It hasn't been that bad. But, you know, there's something on the horizon, partially demographic. But, you know, you can get everything you get from college from uh, Khan Academy and uh, YouTube, except for one thing, which is the certificate. The degree. So, if in fact uh, something's going to happen that makes if employers of the future want people who can do the thing and don't care whether or not they have the degree, then all of a sudden it's going to be a bloodbath for colleges. Well, my argument is a little bit different, and that is as Colleges focus on, you know, better dorm rooms and you get your own private bathroom. You don't have to go down the hall and uh, climbing walls in the student union and high-end video games in the student union and beautiful campuses. I, what is that? Um, I mean, nice. My college doesn't have that stuff, but... And we didn't have stuff when I went to school at Penn in the 60s. But uh, are any of them promoting that they'll make you a better onion? You know, that um, I know what it's like today, but when I was, uh, when I went to college, my freshman English, freshman and sophomore English courses were taught by graduate students. Where's that at? My school, um, I'm a tenured professor with decades of experience. I teach the first year history sections. They don't get a, my students don't get a graduate student. They get uh, the top professors uh, for their first year um, first year history sections. And we have a coherent idea of what it is we're trying to do. So I don't I. Um, uh, this issue of whether Harold Bloom or um, Harold Bloom or Toni Morrison won the won the what you call it Cannons Wars. I you know I just ignore the cannon. I uh, I get the New York Times. And on Sunday, I brought a bunch of book reviews. How many do I have here? About three of them. And I'm always interested in what to read next or listen to. And um, so, you know, I'm always looking at, I get the Week magazine. Uh, first thing I, the only thing I really look at in the week is uh, what's the book of the week that they're talking about. And I'll, I'll find books in from the people that I follow on um, 
on Twitter and Facebook. But here's the New York Times. It has a whole section of the Sunday paper. What is it? Where's the page numbers? Almost 30 pages long, filled with book reviews. And I almost never find anything I want to read in here. Now, obviously, people do. Front cover, October 13. Woman Warrior, a conundrum. This is a book about The Shadow King by Maza Bangisti. 428 pages. Whoa! Conundrum. How to Sing a Song of War for All Those Who Send Humans to Die in the Battle for Notions Like Property and Borders. It Must Seem Simple. Sing war broadly and with your whole chest with lyrics like patriotism, courage, and loyalty. For those who mourn the dead, scribes like the Greek poets, Simonides, who wrote epithets for fallen wars. Your vo- Am I going to read this book? Oh. Can't even read the book review. Um, so what do we have this week? The Sweetest Fruits Fiction. Well, at least go to home fiction. I mean, sorry, to nonfiction. Homesick, a memoir. Fashionopolis, the price of fast fashion and the future of clothes. We are the weather. Saving the planet begins at breakfast. Give me a break. Um, Serious secret library. I mean, every week, I, you know, I get the Sunday half the Sunday Times on Saturday. I don't like that. It's very confusing. Um, I wish it all just came on Sunday. But anyway, uh, I pull out the uh, book review section and I flip through it, and I almost never get any of those books. And of course, today it just hit. Jump to Audible, click, and the book's downloaded automatically onto my phone. So it's very easy to get them. Uh, but uh, so that's their canon. I don't know what, what's what's the next week here. Here is September twenty fifth, front page. Delo- oh, now this is cool. Deliver them from evil. The Institute by Stephen King. I remember there's some type of National Book Award. Maybe it's the National Book Award. And about 10 years ago, they very controversially, you know, it's always always given to books that nobody reads, right? And everybody reads Stephen King. Mega bestseller. And uh, so they really went out on a limb. And they gave the, this national award, maybe it's the National Book Award, to Stephen King. So it was televised, and I remember watching it. He gave this really talk, really great talk, about how, um, well, basically what he was doing was saying that the book award types are a bunch of snobs who are prejudiced against books that sell well. And he listed a whole bunch of authors, and I'm not a literate type, so um, I didn't know who a lot of these people were. But he said, here are, you know, huge authors that sell huge numbers of books. And, and, and some of them are really good and are deserving of awards and attention. And you snobs who only want to um, award books that nobody's reading uh, should pay attention to these. So we're all in favor of seeing Stephen King on the front page of the New York Times book review. What's inside here? A bunch of fiction. Fiction's always some coming-of-age novel, you know, about some child whose parents move and they have a hard time growing up and I guess it's important and somebody reads them and these are people's lives, but so this one has children's books. Nonfiction. 
The Outlaw Ocean Journeys Across the Last Untamed Frontier. Huh. I wonder what that one's about. I have a colleague where I teach who uh, renovated a sailboat and sailed around the world. Inconspicuous consumption. Environmental impacts. You don't know you have. One more thing to feel guilty about. Jeez. And I'm all in favor of fixing it. Um, there's a, an architect named Bill McDonough, really important guy. He wrote a book, highly recommended, Cradle to Cradle, not Cradle to Grave. So Cradle to Grave is you would manufacture something, and how is it ultimately thrown away, disposed of? Well, what if we didn't dispose of anything? What, you know, we don't throw gold away. <laughs> you know, 99% of the gold ever mined is still in circulation. Nobody throws it away. And silver. <laughs> Silver's not that expensive, but still, you know, it's semi-precious metal. And uh, it's used in, or was used, when we in the old days, when we did black and white um, film photography, and you use silver in developing the film. Well, there's, a, you know, you put the chemicals are in a tank, and you develop the film in this tank, and there's a, the fluid in that tank goes through a filter, which captures the silver, and a service comes by once a month and picks up those bottles and, and, brings it to a facility where they extract the silver. So we don't throw silver away. Aluminum cans, we throw them away. But, you know, we have artificially, maybe there's that aluminum in that can is worth a tenth of a penny, if that. But we attach an artificial value to it of a nickel. So there are these people who are otherwise not employed, but do this great service. We see them all the time, trudging through the streets with these huge plastic bags filled with aluminum cans. And they go to the trash where we thoughtlessly throw our aluminum can mixed in with everything else. And they dig through there, extract out the aluminum cans, and bring them to the recycling center and get a nickel each and make a living that way. So we don't throw aluminum away. What if everything was treated that way? So in Germany, uh, in, they don't just crush their end-of-life automobiles, but take them apart. And every part has a code on it. And there are these bins that they throw them into according to the code on the part so that each can be recycled. I mean, think of um, a juice box. That's a layer of cardboard, aluminum, and plastic. How the hell is that? <laughs> There's no way to take that apart to recycle it. I mean, the fact that those should not be permitted. Uh, <clears throat> but if we make everything with in mind how it's going to be recycled, I mean... Um, Old class, old plastic Coke bottles can be recycled. And I'm wearing a fleece vest right now, made from Coke bottles. But only about 10% of them are, 90% of them aren't. Well, let's fix that. Let's get it together. And um, I mean, all that junk plastic should go in a separate bin, and it should all go to a center where it's melted down and made into two-by-fours. And so when we build houses, we should be building with plastic two-by-fours instead of cutting down trees. Leave the trees alone. Leave the forests alone. Let the animals have their forests. And the um, um, and now, very often, decks are made that way, outdoor decks in back of suburban houses. Uh, are typically the lumber on those decks of plastic. They'll never rot, unlike wood, where you have to replace them every five years. 
So anyway, McDonough's book is called Cradle to Cradle. Highly recommended. So there's a book in the New York Times. Maybe I should read New York Times book review. One more. What's this one? Front page. Home Truths, The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. It takes Gus to write a fairy tale these days. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I should read that and find out what it's about. What else is in here? Nonfiction. How to Be an Antichrist, The Education of an Idealist, The Ungrateful Refugee. So I don't know. I just never read these books. But so let me wind up with uh, talking about someone I've wanted to talk about for a couple weeks I never got to. So let's get to it as soon as I find where I put it. Hang on. Hang on. Where did I put that? This is the New York Times. There we go. So a uh, few months ago, a biography of Eve Babbitts came out, Hollywood's Eve. Got a write-up, I think in the Times, not in the book review section, but somewhere in an article. I said, hmm, who's that? Well, I have to confess, I went through the 60s. I know about the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan, but somehow I missed Eve Babbitts. <laughs> So, to be a little bit unfair to her, we, we might refer to her as the lightweight, promiscuous Joan Didion. So, Joan Didion was this uh, journalist who wrote about California, and she still writes. Uh, she's still alive. And Eve Babbitts was writing in the mid-60s, and her first book is called Eve's Hollywood. So she um, uh, went to Hollywood High, Hollywood High School, came from a very artistic family. Her father played in the, um, in a film music studio, I think it was Warner Brothers, one of them, uh, symphony orchestra. So the studios had orchestras. They would provide the uh, music you'd hear in the background of a movie. And it was a good job, made a living, but they were friends of Aldous Huxley and Stravinsky, who Igor Stravinsky was Eve's godfather. So she, she begins um, uh, her, her first book, Eve's Hollywood, with a rejoinder to the put-down of L.A., Los Angeles, as being a cultural wasteland. She says, what are you talking about? Now, my family would go picnicking with Aldous Huxley, you know, Igor Stravinsky. I don't think that's a wasteland. Anyway, she eventually, she was a writer, editor, wrote short pieces. Eventually, they started getting picked up and uh, collected them for a book, Eve's Hollywood, which did okay. And the next book, L.A. Woman, was supposed to break out, and it didn't. So she did okay, wrote these books. They are so good. I mean, what a delight. And the reading, I haven't read them. I've listened to them. And the uh, reader uh, that I've been listening to is really good. She really does a good job. So these books are basically autobiographical. And she... Um, <laughs> she she describes being called into the guidance counselor um, just as she's graduating high school. And I've noticed that she has not applied to University USC, University of Southern California. And she's very bright, very capable, really good student. And the high school likes to have a high, you know, it's good for their reputation that a high percentage of their graduates go to USC. She says, if we, you didn't apply to, guidance counselor says she didn't apply to USC. She says, she says, well, I'm thinking of going to uh, community college. <laughs> what? So she says, she says, I'm, I'm having this conversation as cum is running down my leg. 
<laughs> so so the, the uh, guidance counselor says, what do you think you want to do with your life? And she says, I think I'd like to become an adventurous. But, but what she really meant was a sexual adventurous, as in you go to the bar and you pick up interesting people. She slept half the, the Hollywood you know, stud stars you've heard of, she slept with. <laughs> so, so her book's autobiographical um, collection of our essays. First one is Eve's Hollywood. Next one is L.A. Woman. Next one is Sex and Rage. Um, the next one is Slow Days, Fast Company, The World, The Flesh, and L.A. So... <laughs> So there's a woman named Lily Analik, A-N-O-L-I-K, wrote a biography of her, Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitt's and the Secret History of L.A. And um, so uh, Eve Babbitt's books had fallen out of print, but Lily was aware of them and tried to hunt her down. And she had had a horrible accident. She was smoking in the car and set her dress on fire and was badly burned. And uh, she had no insurance. She's a freelance writer. And all these Hollywood figures all chipped in and took care of her. Uh, but she's um, scarred, doesn't go out much. And <clears throat> you know, she lives in her apartment with her cats and eats in a... Uh, local, she never cooks, uh, eats locally. And uh, Lily was eventually able to persuade her to an interview. And this resulted in an article, I'm pretty sure it was Vanity Fair. And this totally relaunched her career. So New York Review of Books publishing arm has reissued all of uh, Eve Babbitt's books. So they're all highly recommended, just a total delight. Um, uh, Eve's Hollywood, L.A. Woman, Sex and Rage, and Slow Days, Fast Company. And then uh, read the biography, Hollywood's Eve, Eve Babbitt's and the Secret History of L.A. by Lily Analuk. And they're highly recommended if you're a fan they're highly recommended for um, the audio versions. They're just a delight. So anyway, that's my reading recommendations. And I have some guests coming up in future shows, So, but I'll keep uh, going on with my favorite books. And uh, maybe next uh, show when I do this, I'll advertise the phone number. So uh, call in with your favorites. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. Tune in again next Monday.